0: Welcome to the 21st episode of Primary Care Update. I'm Dr. Mark A. Bell. I'm a family physician, professor at the University of Georgia, and editor-in-chief of Essential Evidence Plus, which is an evidence-based online primary care reference. Please check it out at essentialevidenceplus.com. So this is our summary of recent research that we think is relevant to primary care medicine. The opinions expressed are those of the commentators in this podcast doesn't represent medical advice or the endorsement of any products. I'm joined today by my friends, Dr. John Hickner, family physician and editor of the Journal of Family Practice, and Dr. Henry Berry, professor of family medicine at Michigan State University. Hi, guys. How's it going? Good, good, very good. We're going to see the Steve Miller Band tonight up at Interlochen, uh, so it should be uh, kind of a blast from the past. Looking forward to that. (laughs) from the ancient remote past you mean yeah very ancient yes interlocking is a music camp up here that's really nationally known and they always bring in some a lot of wide range of artists and uh, we're going to see a jazz trio later on in the summer but it should be fun tonight So uh, thank
1: you both for coming to my retirement celebration last week. It was great to see you both in the same place. It's been a while since that's happened. It was great to reminisce and frankly, to hear stories I probably would have preferred to forget.
0: Thank you. It was a good time. We enjoyed um, celebrating your career and it doesn't mean you get to stop working though, Henry. That's right. So let's start off with a poem about ruling out serious bacterial infection in febrile infants. This is from the PICARN network, which is the Pediatric Emergency Care Applied Research Network. And the title of the article was A Clinical Prediction Rule to Identify Febrile Infants 60 Days and Younger at Low Risk for Serious Bacterial Infections. So this was a laboratory based prediction model, and they wanted to see if they could rule out serious bacterial infection. Uh, It was set in the ED. Uh, and the the idea behind it is that there have been a lot of previous efforts. There's the Rochester uh, criteria, various clinical rules that have had mixed success based primarily on signs and symptoms and limited laboratory evaluation. This was an attempt to make one that's purely laboratory based and therefore perhaps more uh, objective uh, clinical prediction rule. And the idea was to be able to rule out with a few simple tests. Kids that don't have or are very unlikely to have SBI and um, avoid this kind of an extensive and and potentially invasive workup. So they found a convenient sample of febrile infants, rectal temp, at least 38C, 60 days and younger, who came to the ED. They excluded anyone who looked critically ill and would therefore get a full workup anyway. Any infant that was prematurely born and those with chronic conditions. They all had blood and urine cultures, and the LP was done at the discretion of the treating physician. Of 3,200 eligible infants, 1,800 had a procalcitonin sample drawn, and that was one of the tests that they used. The main outcome was the presence of a serious bacterial infection defined as meningitis, bacteremia, or UTI, and that occurred in about 9% of these infants. They developed their lab model on a portion of the data, and then they tested it on the remainder of the data. The rule said SBI was ruled out if the urinalysis was negative, the absolute neutrophil count was less than 4,090, and the procalcitonin was less than 1.7 nanograms per milliliter. This combination was 98% sensitive and 60% specific. And if you remember, a highly sensitive test when it's negative rules out, SNOUT. So the negative likelihood ratio was 0.04, which is very low that's good. Given a 9% rate of SBI overall, if all three of these tests were negative, the likelihood was only 0.4% for serious bacterial infection. Now, they also asked the clinicians what they thought the likelihood was of SBI, and the clinicians did not do very well. In fact, they were not much better than tossing a coin. So this has potential value in um, improving our ability to identify these kids who are at very low risk, perhaps don't need at least right away Uh, this kind of uh, invasive workup. So bottom line, in febrile infants up to 60 days old, combination of normal UA, ANC less than 4,090, and procalcitonin less than 1.7 largely rules out SBI. John, any comments?
2: Yes, this is quite an impressive clinical decision rule that looks like a negative likelihood ratio that would mean only about one of 250 of these infants did have a serious bacterial infection and might have been missed, but they can be followed up clinically. Uh, Also, it's well done because they used a split sample. So they developed the algorithm with one set of children and then they um, uh, uh, justified or prove the sample, I'm sorry, prove the the clinical decision rule on the other samples. So this, this is well done. I think of all the clinical decision rules that we've seen for febrile infants, this to me looks like it performs the best.
0: Henry.
1: So if we go back to our initial training in medical school or nursing school, Infants are challenging, especially those that are less than six months of age, because they often do not manifest the kinds of clinical signs that we would look for in a child child with an infection. And this looked at those that were two months of age and, and younger, which are even more challenging. And so the physician gestalt here wasn't just that they weren't very good. They were actually horrendous. I did the original poem on this. And when the clinicians thought that there was less than a 1% likelihood that this child had a serious bacterial infection, they would have missed 20% of those children with a serious bacterial infection. We could get really nerdy and calculate likelihood ratios and things of that nature. But this just, this study just reinforces the notion that when you're dealing with a Febrile infant that we really can't trust our observational scales like we would for older infants.
0: Yeah, that's a really good point. I, I will argue that that's very true of these young infants where, you know, like you said, signs and symptoms are just not very reliable. But uh, we actually looked at this clinical gestalt, this overall clinical impression in diagnosis of pneumonia in adults and sore throat in adults and children and sinusitis. And it was actually about as good as clinical prediction rules for an experienced clinician. So, you know, for this in the setting of an adult or uh, for those conditions, I think the clinical prediction rule can be a backup to the decision-making. Here with these young infants where the physical exam may not be as helpful, it really takes uh, more of a a central role in in the evaluation. So hopefully that'll be helpful to folks. And um, particularly if you're working in the ED or you know, are called into the ED to evaluate one of these kids, um, or if you're on a hospital, uh, you know, guidelines group and looking at protocols, this might be worth implementing. So Henry, I think you have the quiz for us. Yes. So this quiz is
1: inspired by the recent bike fundraising event that I rode in this past weekend. I'll say a little bit more about that later. Um, The question is, which of the following statements about malignant melanoma are true? One, melanoma only accounts for 1% of skin cancers. Two, the lifetime risk for developing melanoma is less than 1%. Three, ocular melanoma is the most common eye cancer in adults. Four, ocular melanoma metastasizes hematogenously. And five, the U.S. Preventive Services Task Force recommends screening for skin cancer. Stay tuned.
0: Well, I was on the USPS tip, and I'm not sure I can answer. I think I can answer the fifth one. But uh, the others are, um, uh, we'll have to wait and see. This is uh, a tough one. The, yeah, yeah, especially when you've got the multiple true falls. I hated those in exams. Let's move on. And uh, John, you have a a poem about exercise and falls and injuries in the elderly.
2: Yes. This uh, meta-analysis is entitled, The Association of Long-Term Exercise Training with Risk of Falls, Fractures, Hospitalization, and Mortality in Older Adults, published in JAMA Internal Medicine 2019, Volume 179, starting on page 394, period. Now, we all know that uh, exercise is good for you, especially good for older people. And so this meta-analysis attempts to assess how good it is for you. So they looked at several different outcomes, as you saw in the title. The meta-analyst did a thorough search of five databases and came up with 46 studies, 46 randomized trials, 29 of them actually had multi-component training, which is supposed to be really good. That is, they included aerobic strength and balance training. Uh, Some cases, they just studied strength training or aerobic exercise alone. The most common program included moderate-intensity exercise for 50 minutes three times per week. So this was a significant amount of exercise. Results. Exercise significantly decreased the risk of falls and injurious falls, but did not affect the risk of multiple falls, hospitalization, or mortality. Fractures were less likely in the exercise group, but not significantly so. So um, the results, of course, are, are positive. We know exercise is good for you, but I don't think we can oversell the value of exercise and claim that it's going to decrease mortality, d- decrease hospitalizations. Uh, also, there's some limits to the meta-analysis. Uh, a number of the study's qualities were not terrific. Uh, several had some evidence of bias. So uh, we can't really be totally sure of these results. And also consider that a 59-year-old is not the same as an 80-year-old. So they didn't do any subgroup analysis. Bottom line, however, is I think, uh, as we all know, we should encourage our older folks to exercise, and they can expect to obtain some benefit in terms of fewer falls uh, and probably slightly less fractures. Uh,
1: what do you think, Henry? Henry? Well, I think this study is one of several meta-analyses, and when we step back and look, there have been multiple meta-analyses looking at different aspects of the same issue. Many randomized trials, non-randomized trials, quasi-experimental studies, observational studies, all of which tell us that, you know what? falls in the elderly is a really big deal. It's really important, not only as a marker of frailty, but in terms of uh, predicting serious adverse events over the course of the subsequent year. We know that a woman who sustains a, a hip fracture, the likelihood of her surviving the year is pretty small. The likelihood of her actually being able to go home within six months is only about 50%. So, this is really a big, big deal. Uh, The recurring theme, uh, however, is that when we look at these studies of exercise, quite often we may see some reduction in falls. When we look at the individual studies, we see inconsistencies with regards to whether or not injurious falls are prevented. And so this paper actually, when you pool all of these different studies showing a reduction in injuries, is really demonstrates what is the power of a well-done meta-analysis. And what they didn't particularly address in this paper, but we may see in a later study is that frailty is a particularly important variable that we
0: need to take into account. I thought this was a fairly positive study, and I was less concerned about not having a significant effect on hospitalization and mortality because, um, you know, those are rare events related to a fall. I mean, most, the vast majority of falls do not result in hospitalization or, or certainly death. So, the fact that it did reduce falls and injurious falls I thought was really positive along with obviously all the other good things that exercise can do. And so I, I think this is, you know, certainly something if we have, uh, and, and it would have been nice to see, um, stratification by age. Like you pointed out, I think it's very different what we can expect in a 55 year old compared to a 75 year old. And so, you know, I think that would have been interesting. And I know there've been other studies of more specific kinds of exercise like Tai Chi that have been, which emphasizes balance and slow movements and that that has also been shown to uh, prevent falls so good stuff
2: speaking of tai chi i was in bangkok thailand a few years ago and went out for a walk in the morning and went into the park and there were hundreds of mostly elderly people out doing their morning tai chi
0: well it must have been a beautiful sight yes indeed So, Henry, I think it's your turn for your poem. You want to tell us about blood pressure lowering and lipid lowering? Yeah. So this
1: study asks the question, does long-term blood pressure lowering and lipid lowering prevent cognitive decline in the elderly? This was published in the journal Neurology, the March 26th issue by Bosch and colleagues. This was part of the HOPE-3 trial, Um, HOPE-3 being the Heart Outcomes Prevention Evaluation 3. Uh, this is a long-term follow-up from a subgroup. So, Hope Three included men who are at least fifty-five years of age and women who are at least sixty-five years of age, who had at least one additional cardiovascular risk factors. They also included women who were sixty years of age with two additional risk factors. So, what the what this subgroup focused on were those individuals who were at least 70 years old at the time of enrollment, and they focused on cognitive function. So the HOPE-3 trial, everybody got a four-week active run-in period. So you know I hate active run-in periods because they stack the deck in favor of the intervention. People drop out because of intolerance, because there's some um, potential improvements in symptoms and the like. And so we already um, stack the deck in favor of the intervention. Keep that in mind. Everybody got either candisartan, hydrochlorothiazide, plus placebo, rosuvastatin, plus placebo, both active drugs, or double placebo. Every six months, they evaluated the patients using a variety of tools, including three different standardized tools of cognitive function. They also evaluated each patient's functional status at baseline and at the end of the trial. So after a median of about almost six years, they only had follow-up on about 69% of the enrolled patients, 9% of whom had died. Danger, Will Robinson, when you have a high dropout rate, when you've got more than 20% people drop out, that also tends to make interventions look better. So again, we have to keep that in mind as we look at the data. So what they found was that it didn't matter anybody in the each of the different uh, treatment groups, the degree of change in cognitive function from baseline was comparable. No differences in terms of function or anything along those lines. Now, it turns out that if you took the candesartan hydrochlorothiazide, it did lower your blood pressure. And if you took the rosuvastatin, it also lowered your LDL cholesterol. So, If you think about this randomized trial that has design elements that really tip the scales in favor of making the intervention look better, it didn't. And so that really strengthens the results that this is a negative trial. So the fact that we are able to lower blood pressure, lower cholesterol, not having any improvement in cognitive function, one, it flies in the face of some of the early case control studies that suggested that maybe these medications were contributory towards dementia. But it also, more importantly, challenges some of the uh, observational studies that cardiovascular cardiovascular risk factor modification will actually prevent dementia. Stay tuned. This is really just one study.
2: Dementia is difficult to prevent. Uh, A lot of things have been tried. Not much has really been shown to be of value. Certainly, dementia can be secondary and due to other causes, so a thorough evaluation is important. Uh, Interesting that in JAMA, there was an editorial not long ago about somewhat predatory dementia clinics that prey on families' concerns and have these multiple, multiple treatment components, not most of which have no evidence of any effectiveness. And the editorialist was reminding us that we need to be wary of some of these non-evidence-based dementia clinics. And I suspect some of you Listeners have had patients and patients' families go to these clinics, so be, be wary of that. Uh, those clinics really don't have good randomized trial evidence, uh, so you need to be careful to send your patients to scrupulous neurologists and dementia clinics.
0: Yeah, this uh, I, I guess one limitation to this study. I mean, Henry, you're exactly right. They, you know, it was intentionally or not, you know, the the scales were tipped in favor of finding. Um, In favor of the intervention. Um, But surprisingly small differences in blood pressure, only six millimeters uh, for the intervention group. Uh, For LDL cholesterol, I think it was 25 milligrams, which seems pretty small given the intervention. So they were fairly small effect sizes that were seen in terms of the, you know, the physiologic measures at least. And so I I guess if there was going to be an effect um, it seems like that would probably be insufficient to do it, but uh, certainly it doesn't mean we don't treat you know, uh, elevated lipids, in, particularly as uh, secondary prevention or, or hypertension, but to do so to prevent dementia doesn't appear to be effective. Is that f- a fair assessment, Henry? Yep. Okay. Well, let's move on. I'm anxious to find out the results of the quiz, so Henry's going to go uh, take over and uh, finish up for us. All right. Which of the following statements about
1: malignant melanoma are true? One, melanoma only accounts for 1% of skin cancers. Two, the lifetime risk for developing melanoma is less than 1%. Ocular melanoma is the most common eye cancer in adults. Four, ocular melanoma metastasizes hematogenously. Five, the U.S. Preventive Services Task Force recommends screening for skin cancer. So this past weekend, Terry and I rode with over 2,000 of our closest friends in a fundraiser that supports skin cancer research here at MSU. We've raised over a million dollars, all of which goes directly to MSU researchers. We rode in honor of Terry's mother, Sally, who was diagnosed with vulvar melanoma and died shortly thereafter. Apparently, her melanoma had metastasized from an ocular melanoma. So just to put things into context, the American Cancer Society reports that only 1% of all skin cancers are melanoma, far and away mostly basal cell, squamous cell skin cancers that are out there. They also estimate that in 2019, over 96,000 Americans will be diagnosed, about two-thirds men, a third women, and about 7,000 will die in roughly similar proportions, men and women. The lifetime risk of getting melanoma is about 2.5% in whites, about 0.1% in blacks, and about 0.6% intermediate for Hispanics. So it really depends on skin type more than anything. While early detection for all cancer is Considered a foundation for preventing morbidity and mortality. That's the fundamental principle that we've been taught. Turns out that the data for skin cancer screening are generally lacking. Therefore, in 2016, the U.S. Preventive Services Task Force gave skin cancer screening an I rating, meaning there was inconclusive evidence. It turns out that there is an ocular melanoma foundation. Who would have thought? They report that ocular melanoma arises from the uvea, and it's the most common eye cancer in adults. Retinoblastoma probably representing much more of all eye cancers, but that's predominantly just in children. Um, They also report that uh, patients who develop ocular melanoma about half will develop metastases within about 10 to 15 years, and that metastatic disease is universally fatal. Um, This 50% mortality rate is unchanged despite treatment advances that are out there in treating the primary eye tumor. Two weeks ago, I happened to meet the former dean of Oakland University's um, medical school who founded the new medical school, who I learned was coincidentally an ophthalmologic pathologist, who would have thought? His primary area of focus turns out to be ocular melanoma. And he studied under uh, Wallace Clark, for whom the Clark's uh, melanoma staging criteria are named. And he and Clark were able to demonstrate that melanomas arising from the uvea spread exclusively via the hematogenous route, which makes it really curious why metastatic melanoma is found in unusual locations such as the vulva. So, stay tuned. If you have friends and colleagues who have suffered from melanoma patients, um, think about uh, the, the studies that are out there. There's a lot of fascinating work that's happening at the genomic level with uh, reverse RNA transcription, looking at uh, different ways to use traditional drugs to help to treat this un-
0: unusual condition.
1: So stay tuned.
0: Thanks, Henry. Yeah. When, when we were on the USPSTF and we were talking about skin cancer screening, certainly we, uh, they did have a recommendation, um, supporting the use of prevention, you know, minimizing sun exposure, things like that. Um, but, screening, there was one large ecologic trial done in Germany in uh, Schleswig-Holstein. And they basically uh, tried to do an intervention for the entire province of Schleswig-Holstein, compared it to the rest of Germany, and found essentially very minimal effects. And so overdiagnosis is a concern because we've seen a tripling in the incidence of um, melanoma over the past 20-30 years as we've done more whole body skin screening, uh, sort of opportunistically, but we have seen absolutely no change in mortality due to melanoma. And so that suggests that we're calling a lot of things cautiously, perhaps overcautiously, melanoma and treating them that way without them actually being melanoma. The melanomas that are the cause the most harm are very rapidly growing and probably would become apparent and cause problems in between screening intervals anyway. So that may be why even annual screening isn't enough for these more aggressive melanomas. But um, good work, Henry, with the the bike ride and raising the funds. Uh, Everyone else listening in, thanks for uh, paying attention, for uh, joining us today. And uh, we will talk to you again in a couple of weeks.